Well, the time of Christmas and New Year's comes with a lot of family gatherings. I'm sure a lot of delicious meals. I got to sit down for a great traditional Swedish meal with Lexi's family. We had Swedish meatballs and, and the gravy and lingonberry jam and lefse and all of that wonderful stuff. But of all the great parts of good meals, I think my favorite is the good conversations that happen over those meals, uh, even as much if not more than I like the good food and I love good food. And I just want us to think in our lives, how many of the best conversations that we have happen over tables, sitting down in our chairs over a good meal, sitting in a coffee shop, enjoying tea and coffee together. I'm convinced that a lot of the best community and discipleship and evangelism happen at tables. They happen when we sit down and we have those meaningful conversations. And that's not, I don't think, just something that's true in our culture, in our world. I think it's something that has been true down throughout the ages. It's certainly true for Martin Luther. We know Martin Luther for the 95 Theses, for his declaration at the Diet of Worms that Josh mentioned last week. But a lot of his influence actually happened around a dinner table. A lot of his friends and students would come. They'd sit down at his table to eat meals, to have a glass of Katie Luther's famous homebrew, and they would sit down and they would have conversations. And some of Luther's students wrote down the conversations that they had, and they published, ended up publishing a book called Teschrieden, which if you know German, which I know Maddie knows German, I don't know if anybody else here knows German, it means table talk. If you've ever heard of the book Table Talk. And as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that Jesus also uses meals often as an opportunity to teach. We've seen Jesus sit down with Pharisees. We've seen him sit down with tax collectors and sinners. And in our passage today, we're going to be in Luke 14. We're going to see, again, Jesus sitting down at a meal and using it as a platform for teaching. So in a way, what we're getting is Jesus' tashreden, his table talk this morning. We get to sit down in a way with these people at a meal with Jesus and hear what he has to say. So let's do that this morning. Let's listen to the table talk of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. Luke 14, 1 through 24. Let's go to God's word this morning. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will be begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat, in, eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he uh, sent, sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be full. For I tell you, none of the, those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we know that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. So we ask that you would feed us this morning with the word that comes from your mouth. Feed us with your word here in Luke 14. Father, by your spirit, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that we might feast with Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Luke sets the scene for us in this passage right away in verse 1. It says that on a Sabbath day, Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house for a Sabbath meal. And this wasn't just any Pharisee. It was a ruler of the Pharisees. So this is most likely a very influential, a highly esteemed, probably a pretty wealthy man. But we see that this Pharisee didn't invite Jesus over for this meal because he was a generous man. It says that they were watching Jesus. They're keeping a close eye on what Jesus would do at this meal. They're trying to trap him, trying to catch him saying something wrong or doing something wrong. And a perfect opportunity shows up. And we don't know if maybe they set this up on him. It would definitely would be in, in line with their character and what, what they see. But either way, uh, this situation arises where a man with dropsy is at the meal. Dropsy is uh, like what we would call edema. It's like a, a swelling. You have excess fluid. I'm looking at Lexi because she's a nurse and so she'll frown at me if I say something wrong. But it's often a sign of things like heart failure, right? So this is a sick man who has come in and he's now at this meal and it sets up this tension because is, is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath day or is he not? And Jesus, uh, with the pressure on him, instead turns and puts the pressure on the Pharisees and the lawyers, they're trying to trip, trick him. They're trying to catch him. But he turns and he puts the pressure on them and he asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
And I want us to notice that word lawful because he's asking this question to who? He's asking it to the lawyers. He's asking it to the Pharisees, the people who are supposed to be experts in the law. And so Jesus asks, is it lawful? According to the law, can I heal on the Sabbath or not? And they don't answer him. They remain silent. So Jesus takes the man, heals him, and he sends him off. And then he does something very similar to what he did back in Luke 13 with the healing on the Sabbath. He points out the hypocrisy of them. He says, if you have a son or an ox who falls into a well on the Sabbath day, you're going to go pull him out. So why do you have a problem with me going and healing this man and saving this man if you would go and do the same thing for an ox or your son? He's pointing out their hypocrisy. It says that they cannot, they could not reply to him. So it's not only that they like remained silent, they didn't want to speak. They couldn't say anything to him. They knew if they spoke, they'd be trapping themselves. So Jesus had turned it, he flipped it upside down and he'd set it right on their plate and pointed out their hypocrisy and not his problem, right? We're going to see Jesus do that throughout this passage where he takes what's expected, he takes what the Pharisees are trying to do, he takes it and he flips it upside down. We're going to be looking at the great upside down banquet of Jesus in this passage. And we're going to look at three things particularly as we go through with verses one through six here is kind of the launching pad that Jesus uses for this set of teaching. So we're going to kind of keep it in the back of our mind as we go through and reference back to it and see how Jesus is building on this situation with what he's teaching. So we're going to see three things about the great upside down banquet. The first is the upside down banquet for the guests. The upside down banquet for the guests. The idea is, if you want to be exalted, pursue lowliness. If you want to be exalted, right, you pursue lowliness. Look with me to verse 7, verses 7 through 11, where we'll look at here. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited, right? So he's addressing the guests here. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So remember, these Pharisees and lawyers were watching Jesus. They were keeping an eye on him. What's he going to do? But who was really watching who? Jesus noticed them. Jesus was watching them the whole time. And Jesus wanted to make an observation about what they had done during this meal. He noticed that they chose the places of honor. So in those days, you would sit down at these banquets at a large U-shaped table. So it's not just kind of like a long straight table like we have. It was more of a U-shape. And the host would sit up at the front of the table. And then there was a very specific order going out away from the host, which seats were for the most honored guests and which were for the least honored guests. So the whole banquet system was set up around honor and importance. And Jesus had noticed that when the banquet had started... They had all scrambled. They wanted to get the seats closest to the host. They wanted to get those seats that would get them the most honor. And so Jesus flips it on them, and he tells a parable to them about a wedding feast. Tells them that at a wedding feast, you don't want to go and sit at this seat of highest honor, because if you do that and someone more important than you shows up, what happens? You get embarrassed in front of everybody, because the host walks up to you and he says, look, there's someone here, you know, that's more important, and I'm going to have to ask you to walk all the way down to the, to the bottom of the table. And so you'd have to stand up in front of everybody and do this long walk of shame as everybody watched you be dishonored. 
So he says, instead, go sit at the bottom of the table because then the host will see you and the host will say, oh, I want this person to set up a little higher. And it actually doesn't really matter how far he moves you up because in front of everybody, he's, you're going to be seen being exalted among people. You're going to be moved up the table and people are going to say, wow, this person is important. And it sounds, right, like Jesus is just giving these great pointers for how to really gain honor at these meals. We have to remember this is a parable. Jesus isn't just giving some, like, good advice about how to sit down at banquets. He's teaching them a principle, right? That's kind of what he's doing in a parable. And the principle he gives us, right in verse 11, this is one of the great parables where Jesus tells you what it means right at the end. He doesn't always do that, but he does here. In verse 11, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a principle of reversal, of things being upside down in Jesus' kingdom. The higher brought low, the lower brought high. So if you want to be exalted, you should pursue lowliness. And this isn't a new principle in Luke. It's not like Jesus was just making this up on the spot right here. This is a principle throughout all of scripture. We've been studying in the men's group in Daniel. I know Josh has mentioned this and I'm sorry if we reference Daniel a lot over the next few months just because it's on our mind. But in chapter four, we saw Nebuchadnezzar who stood above his kingdom in his palace and said, look at this great kingdom that I built for my own glory and my own majesty. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar when he does that? He is forced to eat grass like a cow and sleep out in the field until the Lord decides that he wants to raise him up again. He's humbled, right? In Acts 12, we see Herod being humbled. It says in Acts 12, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to the people. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What a quick turnaround for Herod. He's standing there giving this great oration. Everybody's the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. Struck down, eaten by worms, and dies. Right? God lowers down the prideful and the exalted. But he also raises up the lowly. We've seen this even in Luke. We're coming out of Christmas time, so I figured this would be appropriate. In the Magnificat, at the beginning of Luke, Mary, in her song, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. God looked on the humble estate of his servant, and chose her to be used for his purposes so that all generations would call her blessed. And another great example, remember I said, keep in mind the verse, ver, first verse, verses of this chapter. The, the man with dropsy is a great example of this, right? He's at this meal where all these Pharisees and lawyers had been scrambling for honor, but the person that Jesus pays attention to, the person that Jesus blesses and heals is the lowliest man in the entire room. The people he critiques are the high and the powerful and the people who are proud and seeking self-exaltation. And Jesus paid attention to the man with dropsy and healed him. We need to see that there's no place in Jesus' kingdom for self-exaltation, self-importance. 
for pride. We don't gain honor in Christ's kingdom by our own fame, by building our own little kingdoms, by building a name for ourselves, by pointing to our own goodness. We experience the ultimate exaltation and salvation and glorification when we're humble and lowly. Exaltation in Christ's kingdom is for the people who beat their chests and cry, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the people who know their sin, know their lowliness. It's the humble, the people who come to God knowing their need of him, who are truly exalted, who are given salvation. If you want to be exalted in the kingdom of Christ, then you need to pursue humility and lowliness. And whether or not you're rich and powerful in this world or not, that's something that we all need to hear, right? We all need to have our pride be put in check and pursue humility before God. So the first section we looked at the upside down banquet for the guest and the flipping of exaltation, lowliness. Second section is the upside down banquet for the host. The upside down banquet for the host. The principle here, if you want to be repaid, if you want to be repaid, then invite those who can't repay. If you want to be repaid, invite those who can't repay. So we see right away in verse 12, Jesus turns his attention away from the guests and he says something directly to the host. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here again, I think it's important for us to understand the cultural context. In those days, kind of similar to ours, but in a slightly different way, it was the practice to, for these banquets and for these meals and dinners to invite people who were at your social level or near your social level. And then in turn, they would invite you to their banquets. They would invite you to their meals. So it was kind of like this social exchange system of give and take, where you would invite people and then they would invite you back and you'd get both physical things out of it, but you also get reputation. So it's kind of this give and take, you get reputation for being invited back to theirs. And so it's really not just the physical repayment that he's talking about, it's, it's even more than that. It's like you're getting repaid for your generosity and efforts, even in your exaltation in front of other people. So what we see here, though, is that Jesus does what he did before. He turns this upside down. He flips it. Instead of inviting those people who can pay you back, who you get something out of inviting them, invite the people who can't pay you back. Invite the people that you won't get any social street cred for inviting to your banquet. The low, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. This is where we should see that the man with dropsy is the person who should have been at the table with the Pharisee. He shouldn't have just been this intruder on the whole system. He's the one coming in and he's actually the person who should have been there. He should have been sitting at that table enjoying that meal. At least in Jesus' kingdom, that's how it works. Jesus is pointing out that hospitality and generosity for your own sake, for your own self-interest to be repaid on this earth, isn't generosity. It really is just self-interest. Now, right now, I can't, I think it's five, right? Engaged couples at Livingstone. We have a lot of engaged couples here, right? Just kind of all over the place, which is great. It's really exciting. I love it. 
I remember it was probably about this time of year in January when Lexi and I were getting married. We got engaged in December. And then during Christmas, like holiday break from college, we'd spent most of our time preparing for the wedding and doing all the planning. And I remember the hardest part of planning was making the guest list. I don't know if you people have had that experience or you engaged couples right now are currently experiencing the challenge of weeding through 600 names to try to find out the people that can actually fit in the building that you have reserved. It's really challenging. But I just want to give you one little piece of advice for your guest lists this morning. Don't make your guest list based on the people who will give you the most gifts or the best gifts. Don't look at that list of people and then rank them according to income and say, hmm, this person will probably give me a really great gift card or this person will get the most expensive thing on my gift registry. Don't do that. Right? We could be tempted to do that. Don't, don't invite that like, rich third cousin in Alabama you've never met, but who has a mansion just because you want him to come and give you stuff. And even if he doesn't come, then maybe because he feels bad because he got an invitation, he'll send you some fancy gift. Just don't do it. We need to recognize the times that we make our guest lists and even have our hospitality in, in our normal parts of life centered around what we can get from it. We should be convicted about that. We should see how even our hospitality and our generosity should look more like what Jesus shows in his kingdom. Remember, generosity for your own earthly gain is not generosity. It's self-interest. And hospitality for us should not just be something where we look like the rest of the world or we look like something here in this passage where birds of a feather flock together, right? That just happens naturally in the world and in society, that people who are similar to each other, people who are maybe on a similar social level are the people who gather together, invite each other to each other's houses and are friends. The church should look different than that, right? The church should be the type of place where people who have no business getting together apart from their common love for Christ and one another, where they come together in a beautiful community that is compelling to the world that sees it. We should say amen to that, right, about the church. And then we should look at ourselves and say, Does that, is that what it looks like around my own dinner table? If that's what I want to see here, is that happening in my home? Am I inviting just the people who are like me? Am I investing in friendships with people that I would never invest in friendships with apart from our common love for Christ? Am I inviting the lowly, the people that I don't get great, again, relational street cred for being friends with? Do you spend time with people? Are you generous? We need to be hospitable, and it needs to start here, and it needs to start in our homes. So we're a church that practices hospitality and generosity. So Jesus flipped the meal on the guests, and then he flipped the meal on the host. And now Jesus just kind of flips the meal on everybody, turns it upside down, and he gives a picture of his upside-down meal. And that's the last point here, Christ's upside-down banquet. Christ's banquet will be full, but not with who you'd expect. Christ's upside-down banquet. Christ's banquet will be full, but not with who you'd expect. In verse 15, a guest at, the, at this meal, he declares, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, is that a true statement? Not your head. Yes, okay. That's a true statement, right? Blessed is everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God. 
correct. But Jesus wants to push further. He wants to kind of dive into implications that that person would not have seen or understood. So what Jesus does is he tells another parable. A man gave a great banquet and invited many people. But those people all one by one began to make excuses to the servant who had gone and given invitations. One says, sorry, I just bought a field. Or in Wisconsin's term, sorry, I just bought 40 acres of hunting land. And then another says, sorry, I just bought some oxen. Another, sorry, I just got married. But the host of the banquet isn't deterred, is he? He goes and he sends out his servant to invite the crippled, the poor, the lame, the blind. Bring these people in. I want my house filled. I want my banquet full. But even then it isn't full. So he sends his servant outside the city. He says, go out to the highways. Go out to the hedges. Grab everybody that you can find. Compel them. Persuade them. Say, come, there's a meal for you. Come, I want my house to be full. So he does. And they go and they bring people in. And then Jesus, again, gives us a summary at the end in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. My banquet. See, Jesus here is starting to talk about his banquet, not just banquets in general. This isn't a story about just some random banquet. This is a story, a, a parable about Jesus' banquet, his banquet and what it's supposed to look like. And I want us to see three things about Christ's banquet in this passage. First, I want us to see the goodness and generosity of Jesus. It'd be so easy to look at this passage and jump straight to the application for us, straight to what it means for us. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about that. But I think we'd be missing a big part of the point if we didn't slow down and say, what is this actually teaching us about Jesus, the host of this great banquet? Because it tells us a lot. From beginning to end of this passage or this parable, we see the desire of the host to have a full house, to have a full banquet. First, people are rejecting his invitation, but he sends out the invitation far and wide. Go out, bring people in. I want people to come. I want people in my banquet. And if you keep in mind what banquets looked like in that day with people kind of at or near your social level where a man with dropsy was just kind of too low to really be invited for a Pharisee, then you see that this is the, the eternal king, Jesus, and the people invited to his banquet are the poor and the lowliest of society, the people that you go out to the highways and hedges and, and find outside of town. He's saying, bring everybody and bring them to come in. It's exactly the last people you'd expect at a king's banquet. And I think the Pharisees and the lawyers would have pictured what's going on here, and it would have been crazy to them. This fancy meal, this fancy banquet, and it's just full of blind people and the poor people and the homeless, and they're the ones eating this delicious food with the king. It's crazy, right? Jesus is flipping this upside down, and it shows us so much about his grace and his generosity and his kindness and how good he is, and that we should see that he desires for his house to be full. What a good thing. God isn't stingy. Jesus isn't like just sitting up there angry and mean all the time, although he does have wrath against sin. At the same time, he has a passion and desire for people to come to his banquet. We need to recognize that and see it. And that should feel our love for people, our love for the lost, should look like our Savior's love for the lost, for people to come to his banquet. So we need to see the goodness and generosity of Jesus. And then we need to see, second, 
that we must accept the invitation. We must accept the invitation. And we shouldn't be afraid, right, as, as a Reformed church to talk about this, to say you need to accept Jesus' invitation. Shouldn't be afraid to say that. Josh did a really good job last week of talking about the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility as it, as it pertains to the gospel. Right, as we bring the gospel out, as we share the gospel widely, yes, only the people who God, who God converts, the spirit opens their eyes, takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. Those are the people who will hear the gospel and will respond. But at the same time, the gospel needs to be spread widely. That's, it's not our job to convert people. It's our job to bring the gospel and to say, repent and believe. And when we say repent and believe, and when we hear the message, repent and believe, guess what we need to do? We need to repent and believe. We need to actually accept and respond to the invitation that's given to us. And we see here in, in verses 17 through 20, we see why people reject this invitation. Like what's going on that people would actually say no to such a great banquet? We, we see... Uh, what we see in this passage, we need to understand how invitations worked in that culture. There was really two invitations that would be sent out. It's kind of similar to how things work for wedding invitations. The first one would be an RSVP, RSVP type invitation. You'd send out and say, I'm having a banquet. Would you like to come? And that's probably not exactly the words, but it's the idea of that first invitation that would go out. And then they would prepare the meal because it would take a while to prepare a meal and you would never know exactly when it's going to be done. But when the meal was done, you'd send out a second invitation. You'd say, everything's ready now. You can all come. And it's the second invitation that we see in verse 17. He says, come for everything is now ready. It's that second invitation. So what's going on here is these people who are rejecting the invitation already knew that there was going to be a banquet and they had probably already said that they were going to come. And it's a last minute turning where they say, nah, I have something better to do. I have something more important to attend to right now, right? These people already knew and they were, they were changing their mind last minute. And it shows us that these people rejected this invitation because they were too preoccupied with the things of this life. One was preoccupied with his possessions. He had bought a new field. Another was preoccupied with his work. He had bought some new oxen and he wanted to maybe go try them out in his field and see how they would do. Another had just gotten married, so he's preoccupied with his family. And we need to see that there are so many ways that we can get distracted and preoccupied with the things of this life to the point that we ignore Jesus, that we forget him and we don't pay attention. We can say, work is just too important right now. School is just too stressful for me right now. This relationship is really just too important for me to invest in right now. Sports are just so entertaining. And the Packers are going to be in the playoffs, right? I'll focus on Jesus later. And I want you to think, is there anything in your life right now that you're treating as more important than Jesus? That you're giving more attention to and focus than him? Because in the midst of so many important things, like things are important. Family is so important. Our work is important. School is important. All those things are important. But the most important thing is Christ. The most important thing is responding to his invitation and knowing him and going to his banquet. 
So don't get so caught up in the things of this life that you forget Jesus, even good things. And then lastly, I want us to see that the invitation must be delivered, right? The invitation must be received and accepted. The invitation also must be delivered. The host sent out his servant to the poor, crippled, lame, the blind. Then he sends a servant to the highways and the byways outside the city. This is a fantastic picture for us of the mission of the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? And we don't just proclaim the gospel to rich people so they can come into our church and pay good tithes so that we can pay our bills, right? We, we spread the gospel to even those who will come into our church and will need and we'll need more mercy ministry money help than they could even give to the church, right? We go and we spread the gospel to everybody and anybody who will hear to the ends of the earth. Some people take, there's, there's a word in here, compel. I want us to look at this. Compel, it's in verse 23. Some people take this word compel to mean to force, to, to coerce people, maybe to trick people to force people into the kingdom. They take this as, as license to use whatever means necessary to get people into the church. It's even been used in church history to say that you can threaten people with violence to even persuade them to come into the church. And we should, you know, we look at that and we say, that's ridiculous, right? But we should also recognize we can't trick people in. There's no, like, bait and switch is not fit in the, in, in compel here, right? We don't trick people or force them into the kingdom in some way. A better way to translate this verse than to force would be to strongly urge or to strongly persuade, to say, come, come to the meal, come to the banquet, come to Jesus. Jesus has called us as his people to go out and to urge, to lovingly persuade people to come to a banquet. And that should also remind us that the news that we proclaim is good news. We're not inviting people to come to just a mashed potatoes and Wonder Bread meal, where you're just eating PB&Js. Imagine that you're this servant and you're going out to the highways and the hedges. You're going to the poor and the hungry and the homeless and you're saying, there is a fantastic banquet here. There's more, more food, more delicious food, better wine than you've ever tasted. Why wouldn't you come to this meal? It is so good, it is so fantastic. It is exactly what you need. The things that you hunger for are going to be provided. This is the meal. When we think about the gospel, do we think that we're inviting people into some dreary kingdom? No, we're inviting hungry and thirsty people into a kingdom where they're provided food and good drink, where they're provided good company. And some of us are good company, right? They're invited into a feast with the best of hosts. We have the best thing to invite people to. And that should reflect in the way that we share that news and that invitation. We say, come to this delicious meal, this fantastic banquet with a good and gracious and loving king as we invite people into the kingdom to respond to the gospel. So as we come this morning, we come to the Lord's Supper today, we need to remember that. We need to remember that we have been given the greatest meal. We've been given the best meal with the best host. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, we get a foretaste of the banquet to come, right? The Lord's Supper is a feast for any who have accepted the invitation to Jesus' greater banquet. I think that's a good way for us to look at it today. If you have accepted that call, if you have responded with repentance and faith, then this meal too is for you a foretaste of that even greater meal. And so I want to compel you. 
I want to urge you. I want to lovingly persuade you. Don't get distracted by the things of this life because this invitation is far too important for you and for me. And don't be hindered by your own self-importance or your own self, self-importance, your own self-pride. Christ's banquet is for the lowly, it's for the weak, it's for the humble, it's for the sinner who knows their need of salvation. And again, the sinner who beats their chest and says, God, be merciful, for, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. So this morning, if you see your sin, if you feel your sin's weight, if you have trusted in Christ, then this meal for, is for you. And again, let it be a foretaste of the banquet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good, gracious, and generous king. That, in, that you have sent your son, Christ, to redeem us, to welcome us into your kingdom, to give us the promise of a great feast. Father, keep us from distractions in our lives. Help us to remember Christ. Help us to think on him. Help us to seriously consider his invitation if we haven't accepted it. Father, help us to love Christ far more than even the many important things in our lives. Be with us as we take of the Lord's Supper. Strengthen our faith. Feed us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.